All right, well, let's get after it. We have a Bible. Daniel chapter 6 is where we'll be. Daniel 6, as we continue on in our series on the book of Daniel. Good to be with you this morning. That last song always gets me pumped up. One of my favorites. Uh, We'll be in Daniel 6. We'll spend our second week in Daniel 6. You remember from last week, we took a a morning and kind of went through how different church fathers throughout history have read Daniel 6. So this real famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. We saw some guys like Hippolytus who, who when he reads Daniel 6, he sees this picture of the spiritual warfare that you and I are involved in as Christians. So there are these these trials and temptations and, and, and sometimes these plans to attack us and trip us that often come our way as Christians, but we, we've got to stand strong and be faithful. And, and we looked at Jerome, who, who saw in Daniel 6, and, and Daniel going into the lion's den, and then coming back out, a picture of Christ, who went into the pit, who went into the grave on our behalf, and then rose again. We, we looked at John Chrysostom, who, who said not only is Daniel seemingly a type of Christ, but he's also a type of you and I. That one day we'll go into the pit, one day we'll die, and yet we'll raise again like Jesus has risen again. And, and so this morning we want to spend another week, um, and, and we'll move on after this, but another week looking at this story because it's so powerful. And, and one of the things we said at the beginning when we started off the book of Daniel was we wanted to avoid the veggie tales temptation. Okay? Um, now actually, because I do, do everything here, right? This is, I mean, top-notch research for these sermons. I, I came across this fact this week um, that... Daniel 6 was actually one of the stories in the very first VeggieTales episode um, in 1993. So the very first VeggieTales um, had two stories. The second one was on Daniel 6, Daniel Lines in. So there's some kind of like Harry Potter connection, okay? Like the wands. There's some kind of weird union, I think, between this story and, and then kind of the, the way we VeggieTale things. Um, and so what we mean by that, what we mean by trying to avoid the VeggieTale temptation is, is we don't want to take a really powerful... And, and a nerving and unsettling story and make it cute and make it like moralizing, right? So where you'll just always get out of your trouble, right? And, and, and just like Daniel had lions facing him, you can face the lions facing you, right? That awkward conversation you're going to have on Monday, that relationship that's going to come up this week, those kind of things. Because these stories are, are, are very powerful and very prophetic and, and have this tendency to, if we let them, I think really speak truth into our lives. But as Christians, sometimes we do this. We take stories in the Bible that can be challenging, and that can be maybe a little unnerving to us, and we, we kind of round off the edges. And we make it really cute, and we make it really marketable. I mean, we, we make it so that this would look really good in a soundbite. All we need is some vegetables now, and the whole world will like this, right? I mean, this will be a cute story. Um, I think of a good example of this is the flood story, right? And so we, we, it turns into a story about rainbows for our children, right? And, and, I mean, you kind of don't spend time thinking about all the people who drowned, right? I mean, this is a story that is kind of horrifying in a sense that maybe you don't want to tell your children right, right before you go to bed, right? Remember that time when God drowned everybody? <laughs> Say your prayers, okay? I actually read some guy who was, who, I think he was just trying to be a smarter, like, I don't know, but... He said, if you read the, the flood story carefully, God only promised not to kill everybody with another flood. He didn't promise not to kill you with another flood, right? And so it was like, oh, well, I guess, okay, maybe we should be scared of this flood again. Um, but I mean, we, so we take off those, those rough edges, which, let's be honest, there's some rough edges when God drowns everybody, okay? And when he regrets making humanity, I mean, which is what Genesis says, there are some, some questions there, right? I mean, there's some things we're going to have to wrestle with. We take it off and we go, aren't rainbows cute? You want to know how we got rainbows? God made rainbows. 
and God made you, and he loves you, and good night, honey, right? And so, I mean, we, we've kind of done this with this story. So you've got Daniel, and he's thrown into a pit of lions because he worships the one true God. It's not the American dream. And, and we, we take it, and we turn it into this cute, like, moral, right? That you and I should have courage as well. But, but I want to look at the story this morning and, and, and try to tease out some of the powerful truths that we might find in there. I was helped in this task to avoid the VeggieTale temptation this week by certain news that came out of the global community about the church. Uh, if you follow such things, um, you are aware that in Egypt, Christians, brothers and sisters of, of you and I, uh, are being persecuted right now. Um, for their faith in Christ. And so this past week, estimates are that 40 churches were looted and burned to the ground in Egypt. Um, and I don't know where you are in, in your faith or in, in your kind of feeling of connection to your brothers and sisters across the world. Um, but according to the scriptures, we are one family and that when one uh, person hurts in our family, we all hurt. Um, and, and so we're in prayer for these people and we are thinking about them and, and we are praying for them. And I, I, I mean, I don't know, again, what your kind of mental reaction would be, but I can't even imagine, right? What, I mean, thinking about, trying to think about this week, if FC3 was looted and then burnt to the ground to a crisp, right? I mean, what a, I mean, take the big church, right? <laughs> There's way more over there, okay? I, I think we might be last on the hit list, but, but to think about, you know, what might we be doing this morning? How might we be feeling? What, would, would we be thinking about our songs a little bit differently, We'd be thinking about stories like Daniel 6 maybe a little bit differently. And, 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 and all over the world, I mean, so in Syria, Christians have had it bad for a while, for the last few months. And, and in Daniel 3, when we saw a story similar to this one we'll see in Daniel 6, we talked about persecution. And the fact that even today, Christians are one of the most persecuted groups in the world. And so while you and I might not feel that same weight with real physical persecution in front of us, we are, however, called to the same faithfulness. And we are called to worship and follow the same Lord that these people are worshiping and following. And so I want to read Daniel 6, and, and I want to keep these things in mind. I want to try to feel the weight of the story in front of us. Okay, so we'll pick it up in Daniel 6 and verse 1. Daniel 6 verse 1. And I want to read Daniel this morning in, in a way that's, that's genuine and honest, particularly in light of our Egyptian brothers and sisters. I want to read it in a way that, that we might stand in solidarity with them. Okay, Daniel 6 verse 1. It pleads Darius... To set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps, verse 6, came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdoms, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document 
and injunction. So you find Daniel here um, being successful in, in, his, in the kingdom and, and um, probably what's the Persian kingdom at this point. Babylon has probably fallen and, and now Persia is in control, but he's still in this foreign land and, and he's being successful and, and the people around him start to get envious of him and jealous of him and they start to set a trap for Daniel. They start to persecute him. Remember Hippolytus would see in the presence and the satraps, he'd see um, Anyone, right, who, who comes to oppress and to trip and to trap Christians, whether um, Satan or demons or, or other people, this is spiritual warfare that we're involved in. And so Daniel has these enemies that come against him, and Darius makes this law. They figure out they're not going to find anything, any dirt on Daniel, because he's a, he's a pretty good guy. Um, but the one place where, where he will get trapped is if you, if you make him force, if you, if you force him to choose between his God and the kingdom, I mean, it's no question for Daniel. Everyone knows this about Daniel. At this point in Daniel's life, he's probably around 90 years old. This is not the same Daniel we met in Daniel chapter 1 when he was a young kid, 14, 15, 16 years old in a foreign land. This is a guy who's been through regime changes. This is a guy who's been one of the most powerful people in multiple empires and who stood the test of time and the test of various trials and temptations that come his way. And now this trap is set for Daniel. And remember, we're, we're approaching the book of Daniel um, with the comparison between Daniel and us being that we're both resident aliens. So Daniel was trying to be faithful to the people of God in a context and in a situation and a circumstance where there were people and pressures and influences around him that were trying to get him to not be faithful. That were trying to distract him and, and divert him. And you and I, I think, find ourselves in similar situations. In a world where it's not always easy to follow Christ the way that we're called to follow Christ. In a world where sometimes the voices that we hear and the pressures and temptations that come our way try to get us off track in how we might be called to follow Christ. I think in Daniel, particularly here in the story, we see um, some important pointers for you and I as we watch Daniel remain faithful in Babylon. We might pick up lessons on how you and I might remain faithful in our foreign context as we live as exiles First Peter would say, in this world as we await for the kingdom to come. So the first thing I want to point out here this morning is, is I want to look at, it, it strikes me um, that Darius's command, okay, that he doesn't really want, but the command that he ends up putting down because of the, the scheming of his other leaders is a subtle command. Watch, watch, watch what's so tempting about Darius' command. He doesn't say you can't worship other gods. He simply says, for 30 days. This doesn't involve a big life change of yours. This doesn't involve um, some dramatic denial of whatever faith you might hold to. But just for 30 days, express your loyalty to me. Bring your petitions to me. In fact, I think this is one of the most dangerous temptations for resident aliens. It's not necessarily a complete abandonment of our faith, but it's what we might call a mixing of loyalties. A mixing of loyalties. This is the, the first thing I want to point out this morning is that as resident aliens like Daniel, you and I must never mix our loyalties. Daniel um, he sees this command from Darius and, and the command is not abandon your gods. The command is simply acknowledge my sovereignty. Acknowledge your allegiance to myself. Spend 30 days focusing on what I can and do provide for you. I think this is one of the things that I've seen Christians been faced with in, in our cir uh, circumstances, in our um, kind of society that we live in. There's always this, this tendency, not for you and I to no longer be Christians, but for us to simply add other allegiances next to Christ. And what happens, if we're not careful, is slowly and over time, those allegiances start to mix. 
And it gets harder and harder to tell whether we're actually loyal to this or to Christ. And so some examples, for instance, um, I think a, a, a prominent example is the nation. Sometimes if people aren't careful, loyalty to a nation gets confused and mixed up with loyalty to Christ. And to where you can't really tell where one begins and one ends. And you start thinking, well, if, if this or that nation's purposes aren't accomplished, then Christ's purposes won't be accomplished. Um, I think this is actually what happens to Nazi Germany. You'll be um, aware that in Nazi Germany, it was mainly a Christian country. And it was Christians that were in Hitler's regime. It was Christians that fought his battles. And it was Christians who at best turned a blind eye to what was happening. At no point did they say, we're not Christians anymore. They simply said, we're German Christians. And this seems best for Germany. This seems best for the situation that I'm in. I've been convinced that this is the best course for Germany's mission. And so I'll, I'll turn a blind eye. I mean, so a nation, I think it can happen there. You mix these loyalties together. I think with partisan politics, so you pick a side inside of a nation, it happens all the time. Um, I'll give another historical example, Rwanda. Remember the genocide in Rwanda? Now, at the time of the genocide, um, Christian missiologists, so people who, who watch evangelism, said that Rwanda was our most successful evangelism field ever in history. That Christianity exploded so fast in Rwanda and so successfully that that was the case study. That was how you converted a nation. And at the time, the consensus was that Rwanda was the most Christian nation in Africa, hands down. And then in a the matter of days, they slaughtered each other like animals. And if you know the, the history behind it, again, at no point did they say we're not Christian anymore. They simply said, we're of one political party, you're of another, and we're going to hack each other down with, with machetes while the rest of the world watches and does, does nothing. Again, a lot of Christians watching and doing nothing while it happens, right? Here's, here's what happens. The, the Rwandans, the Christians in Rwanda, had simply become so aligned with the political party of partisan politics inside of Rwanda that they could not separate out their Christianity, their loyalty to Christ, and their call to not kill other people. And they're called to love even their own brothers and sisters in their own country, right? The loyalties start mixing together, and it's hard to tell where one stops and where one ends. And, and, and these are dramatic examples, right? But I think it works for our, our workplaces. I mean, we, we become loyal to our company. We become loyal to an organization. And before we know it, perhaps we are willing to turn a blind eye to certain things that are happening. Because we, we support it. And we really do think, overall, it serves a good purpose. And so we, we don't say this or that, or we're willing to do this or that. We slowly but surely mix our loyalties together. We're, we're unable to make a stand and say, no, I'm sorry, this is not appropriate, which Daniel is, if anything, always able to make that stand, is always able to say, this is where, this is where the line is drawn. My loyalties are 100% here, and I will never confuse them with anything else. This is the temptation here. Darius is not saying, hey, become an atheist. Or Daniel, go out on a, uh, on a mountaintop and say, I no longer worship the God of Israel. He's saying, no, just, just add to it. Just mix it up a little bit. Just give me 30 days of allegiance. And Daniel says, there's no competition here. There's at, at no point in my life a, a battle for allegiance, for loyalty. I'm always faithful to the God of Israel above all else. I think this is a temptation for you and I as well. What happens is compromise, not denial, becomes the most dangerous thing in our lives. 
not the, the choice of becoming an atheist, okay, and writing books about why God doesn't exist, but the choice of just looking like everybody else. Of just slowly but surely compromising our beliefs and our actions until there's nothing really distinctively Christian about us. We look and act and talk and dress like the rest of the world around us. Think about if you were Daniel, how easy it would have been to stay out of trouble. So in, in verse 10, we'll see Daniel goes on and, and he prays in public and gets in trouble okay, in his house. People see him and he gets in trouble. How many options does Daniel have to get out of this? If, you, if it was you and I, if it was me, I'm really good at rationalizing things. I mean, dude, just pray on the inside, right? I mean, pray in your mind. There's no need to open the window. There's no need to say things out loud. It's 30 days. This is not that hard. right? I mean, you, it's not too hard to stay under the radar for this. Pray on the inside. Or just don't pray for a month. We do it all the time, right? I mean, we're, we're still here. We still go to church, and, and it's just 30 days. I mean, it's just a temporary time period. You can always come back afterwards and say, you know, I'm sorry for the 30 days, God. And thanks for forgiving me. I'm back again, right? I mean, there's so many ways out of this. There's so many ways for Daniel to compromise. He doesn't have to deny anything. There's just the subtle temptation to compromise, to give up one little thing. But Daniel recognizes in compromise a loss of identity, a slope that would lead to him um, being no longer faithful. I think this is a big temptation for you and I, for us to be assimilated into the world. And it doesn't happen dramatically. It doesn't happen with a big conversion into atheism or Scientology or something like that. It happens simply when we look at the world around us and say, we'll compromise our beliefs. I'll participate in that. I'll, I'll say that. I'll go here. And I'll pretend that this matches with my Christian faith. And then what happens is slowly but surely, five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years, you no longer are a Christian. I mean, you no longer have that identity. There's no way to distinguish you between anyone else in, in Babylon, anyone else in the world that, in which you are living, people who don't believe you're, in your God, people who don't worship the God that you worship, um, things of that nature. But Christians like Daniel are called to faithfulness. And, and one of the things that these stories give us is, is that Christians are called to faithfulness even in the face of persecution. So Daniel is, is very willing, just like his three friends are, to be persecuted. Okay? He goes and he prays. It does not bother him that he might be thrown into a, a lion's den. This is one of the, the, the ways that you and I are called to, or are, are seduced to um, compromise, are seduced to be unfaithful, is the threat of pain or persecution. Now, for, of course, our Christians in Egypt and, and Syria, this could be like a real type of persecution. For you and I, it's often much more subtle and a little more lame, right? But, but nonetheless, sometimes real sacrifice and real pain and real hurt. The call to lose a friend, or the call to, to lose something that you enjoy, pleasure, money, time. I mean, in a family situation, right? I mean, if, if, if one part of the family unit decides they really want to follow Christ better than they've got, and the other part of the family is not always on board, that's going to cause some tension. I mean, there are all these different ways in which, when we really decide to get on track and follow Christ, we might end up facing persecution. We have to ask ourselves, what are we prepared to give up? What are we prepared to lose? Daniel was prepared to die. His friends were prepared to die. We, we talked about this in Daniel 3 when, when they went into the fiery furnace. This idea that how much we're prepared to sacrifice for Christ is also the line of obedience we draw. It's also how far we'll be willing to be obedient. So if we say, I'll obey, I'll give you everything until my life's in threat, well then, 
we'll obey and we'll be good. But the moment a gun's pointed on our head, right? I mean, we'll do whatever we need to do to survive. Or if we say, I'll obey until the point when I start losing friends. I mean, then we'll do what we can do and need to do until people start talking about it and saying stuff. And then we'll, we'll slow it down and we'll do what we need to do to blend back in, right? I mean, there's, there's always this line in the sand that we, we draw. And one of the things that Daniel and, and these stories, I think, in, in the book of Daniel teach us is that, if, I mean, if we're really going to be sold out to Christ, there has to be the sense that, that we're willing to, to give it up. All of it. We live with open hands. We're willing to even be martyrs if necessary. I don't think true obedience is possible, it's possible without that. And then we're, uh, we're, we're taught that we're called to be faithful even above the call to be useful. This is what also strikes me about Daniel. Okay? Daniel is a very powerful person. And Daniel could have rationalized his decision to compromise based on his perceived idea of effectiveness. I could do so much good being this high up in, in Persia. Surely it doesn't matter that much if I don't pray for 30, 30 days. I mean, think about how much influence I could have as, as one of these people in charge. I think this is a big temptation for you and I. Is we, we fall into, without even realizing sometimes, this thinking of that the ends justifies the means. So if, if our perceived end to this course of action is overall good in our own minds, we're willing to do things that maybe aren't Christian on the way. We would rather be useful than be faithful. Now, Daniel does teach us you can be useful and faithful. I mean, he, he, he makes it through here, right? Even at the end of the story, he's back in the courts doing amazing things. But Daniel is willing to give it all up in a second. At no point does Daniel say, you know what? I need to keep this position in the kingdom, and so, so I'm willing to compromise and back down off of certain beliefs. He says, no, throw me out. I don't care. I would rather be faithful than have some sort of perceived effectiveness in the world around me. I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. I'm called to worship um, the one true God. And, and so he's willing to, to suffer. He's willing to um, stay faithful despite the cost. This has been the stance of Christians throughout history. But even before Christ's time, we see here with Daniel and his friends, and then throughout history, there's a, a man named Polycarp. We just mentioned him last week. He was a disciple of John. And Polycarp, um, when he was 86 years old, was burnt at the stake in Smyrna. And they asked him to recant. Um, before he was killed, and, and he said, I followed Christ for over 80 years, and he's never done me any wrong. Why would I, why would I betray him now? And he, he goes to the stakes, right? I mean, he's not even willing to, to verbally... I mean, again, think about the rationalizations that would go through our minds, my mind at that point, right? Well, I could say that I don't believe in Christ, but still kind of believe in him in my heart, right? Or I could say I don't believe in him and then go ask for forgiveness later, but I'm no good to anybody if I'm dead, if I'm burnt, if I'm ashes, right? But think of all the people that I could touch with the rest of my life. If I could just get out of this sticky situation. If I just compromised right now and was able to, to live a long life. But for, for the early Christians, out of these biblical traditions, that kind of thinking doesn't make sense to them. They're just not willing to compromise. They would rather die being faithful an attempt to, to influence the world and history in their own ways, if it, if it involves compromising, if it involves not being faithful. So, so Daniel, I think, um, just like in Daniel 3 uh, with his friends, gives us this, this strong and powerful example of, of what it means to be willing to, to give it all up. We read it in the scripture reading this morning. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to count the cost. You're going to be willing to give up 
certain things, and Daniel illustrates that for us. Um, and then what really interests me is, is Daniel's response, okay? So um, he's willing to be faithful, and then look at how he does in verse 10. And I, I think we'll see also why he was able to do it, which is really interesting to me. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So many important things here, okay? <laughs> he goes to his upper chamber and he opens the door, he opens the window toward Jerusalem. I think this is important. I think this is significant. I think here you see that Daniel, despite living in, in Babylon and Persia for years and decades and decades, still thinks his identity is the people of God, is the temple, is Jerusalem. He opens it up and he prays toward Jerusalem. And Daniel, despite years and years of being this powerful, influential person, still has this habit of going and praying three times a day. Psalm 55 says pray in the morning and at night and at midday at noon. And Daniel is faithful to this, this pattern, this practice. And this is not the kind of praying, right, where we just say like five or ten seconds of a prayer before a meal. This is, think what you would probably imagine for like Islamic prayer patterns, where you get a mat out, like you stop your day, right? And you're laying on the ground, you're facing a certain way. There's this actual pattern that you're following. It's a, it's, a, it's a big time out of your day where you refocus on who your God is and what he's done, what he's called you to do. And then you, you see here, even in the text, um, Daniel, he doesn't go do this because of what Darius does. He does it because that's just what he does. I mean, this is an important point. Daniel doesn't um, perceive some danger because of this command, go, I've got to go pray, stop everything I'm doing. No, the text says, this is just what he does as he's done previously. Every day at noon, he just went to his house, opened the window of Jerusalem, and prayed. Daniel has this kind of unflinching obedience that's really interesting to me. And, and in the narrative, in the story of Daniel, it's interesting because whoever's writing this doesn't focus much on Daniel at all in the story. There's no big speech here. And when Daniel gets caught later, there's no big speech. At no point do we get the thoughts and the motives of Daniel. The way that we would read the story is just, this is who he was. I mean, this is, hey, we didn't have to think about it. This was never really a big struggle in his heart or his mind. Now, we see a whole lot about the thought process and the motives of the schemers, and even of Darius himself, who doesn't want Daniel to be killed. But this is simply who Daniel is. So he hears the command, he knows he might get thrown into the lion's pit, and then his watch beeps. He goes, what time is it? That's time to go to my house and pray. So he goes to his house and he prays. He opens the window up to Jerusalem and he prays. Then these men came by agreement, verse 11, and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the, lion, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, it's the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So, so Daniel has this unflinching, obedient reaction. 
And then it's also interesting because not only does Daniel just immediately obey, but, but he also ends up having a better night than King Darius. And I mean, King Darius has a much more stressful night than Daniel does. According to, to how the story goes and kind of how legend is built up around it, Daniel plays with lions all night. I mean, it's this cool, like, Discovery Channel special. <laughs> and Darius is in his room going, like, what in the world have I just done? And he's, he's, he's fasting, he's scheming, he's thinking, he's, he's fretting, fretting. I mean, he's, he's, he's just not having the best night of his life. Daniel has this power that he's able to tap into this joy and this peace that he's able to tap into. And I think this scene in the upper room gives us a, a, a window into where he draws that power, where he draws his ability to be faithful. Here's what we would say this morning. Christian faithfulness, the people of God, the, the reason they're able to, to, to live like this, the reason Daniel's able to have this response is because of the spiritual disciplines which he's practiced his whole life. Um, one of my favorite pastors would say it like this, no one accidentally becomes godly. Daniel is not an accident. And Daniel 6 is not an accident. Daniel didn't wake up that morning and decide that he would find his identity in the one true God and that he would be faithful no matter what, even if it cost him his life. He had made that decision every day for 80 years. And when it finally happened, it was second nature to him. Because he had prayed and prayed and prayed, and he had been through experiences like this. I mean, we've talked about this before in, in terms of virtue. The character traits that we need as Christians, faith, hope, and love, these aren't things we simply decide to do one day. And then all of a sudden we're there, and we, we have faith like Daniel, and we love like Jesus loved. And we hope like the, the Apostle John hoped for the future. No, these are things that we have to practice over time, that slowly but surely we find ourselves growing in. I think of Polycarp, again, he's an 86-year-old, he's about to be burned at the stake. He says, I followed Christ, there's no way I'm going to betray him right now. I have to think his reaction at 86 is different than his reaction would have been at 25. After 80 years of following Christ, after 80 years of knowing him, of focusing on him, of growing in him, there's this, there's this growth, this maturity that happens. Daniel, I think, displays this for us. And it's a maturity that, that will never come to us if we don't have these spiritual practices. If we don't have these, these times in our own upper rooms, these times with our windows open to Jerusalem, these times where we can remember and refocus our identity. Um, there's a, a couple of friends I know right now going through a, a hard time in their life, and I heard one of them talk about it like this. They said that uh, right now we're flexing, we're, we're stretching our faith muscles. And I thought, I mean, that's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening now. And what's going to happen in, in 25 years, someone's going to watch them encounter a situation, and they're going to go, how can they have that much faith? And the answer is going to be because 25 years ago, they started. They started practicing. They started praying. They started trusting. They started believing. And before you knew it, it was second nature to them. How does Daniel become Daniel? I think we, we see here. Because in the morning, he would open his window to Jerusalem and he would pray. And in the noontime, in the midday, he would open his window and he would pray. And at evening, he would open his window and he would pray. And I wonder if you and I have these kind of patterns built into our life as well, that, that we might have these regular reminders of our identity. These regular times where, I mean, this is so interesting about Daniel. He lived in Babylon. He was immersed in their culture. He was a big um, political mover and shaker in their, their, their kingdom. 
But yet he still saw his identity not in Babylon, but in Jerusalem. And he opened his window there every day. I, I wonder if, if you and I have these regular times to remember so that we don't find our identity shaped by our surroundings, but instead by where we belong and who we belong to. Because Christianity doesn't really have this geographical center, but we do have this person, personal center. And we refocus, we open our windows up toward Christ. We refocus on him and on his, his body, his community in the world. And you and I need to have these kind of regular patterns, these regular times, these regular disciplines where we, we open up our windows to Jerusalem. Because I don't think when we are put in these situations where the choice is before us to be faithful or to not be faithful, I don't think we're going to do that well if we don't have these years of prayer behind us. I mean, this is not something that just happens. Someone just decides to do one day. This is something that takes years and years and years. It's like the professional athlete who makes this ridiculous shot in the fourth quarter. It makes it look so easy. And, but, I mean, what you never see there is the thousands of hours in the court, on the field, after hours by himself. Practicing. Practicing. Growing. Learning. Maturing. This is not too dissimilar, I think, from our Christian faith. I think you see this interesting picture in Daniel's personal life here that explains, I think, pretty powerfully why he's able to act the way he is. You and I need, as well, these regular reminders of our identity, these times of scripture and prayer. Martin Luther is this, the great Protestant reformer, and, and he was real famous for praying three hours every day um, before he went to his, his work, whatever work he had for the day. And he accomplished a whole lot during his lifetime, and he was once asked how you were able to do all that if you prayed for three hours. Why would, I mean, in my mind, three hours is a big chunk of the day, right? I mean, I feel like my productivity level would go way down if I spent three hours in prayer. Um, and, and Luther's response was, because how else am I going to get it all done? I mean, the reason I spend three hours in prayer is because I have this much to do. I need three hours to know who I am and to, to, to be in union with the Father and to sink my soul back up with the mission of Christ and the communion with the Spirit. I mean, I can't possibly accomplish what I need to accomplish if I don't have this time where I open up my window to Jerusalem. So what patterns do you have set up? What, what times are, are you doing this? Are you, are you intentionally building this into your life? I think this is so important for us. I think sometimes I've been guilty of demeaning the classic kind of quiet time that has become kind of a staple of evangelical Christianity. But, but there's truth to it. And there's truth to the, the idea that you need to have these regular times of reading scripture and these regular times of prayer and these regular times of worship. This has to be much more than a Sunday morning thing. At least if you want to be faithful in a tempting environment, like Daniel's faithful in a tempting environment. I think we also need to um, be sustained with a strong community, with a strong group of people around us. We need times of both accountability and encouragement. So there are sometimes when we need a kick in the butt and sometimes we need a pat on the back. And we need people around us who know us and who we know who um, can tell us the truth and who we can tell the truth to. Um, I'm, again, I'm not sure that we'll be able to remain faithful without each other. I mean, some days I, I wonder if we can remain faithful with each other. Right? But, but I'm pretty sure most of the time that there's no way we can be faithful without each other, without the body, without the support of our brothers and sisters around us. So as we continue reading the story, verse 19 at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, 
The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before you, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues in heaven and on earth. He works signs and wonders. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I think... The last thing to point out here, and I think this grounds everything for Daniel, is that, that Daniel's faithfulness was grounded by his experience and, and knowledge and faith in God's saving power. He knew that God could and would save him from the lion's den. And, and, and lest we think that the point of this story is that God always will save you from the lions, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that's what Daniel's driving at. Right? I don't think our, our brothers and sisters in Egypt should be confused today because God protected Daniel but didn't protect them. I think the point is at a different place in the story. The point is on Daniel's call to be faithful no matter what. Like in Daniel 3, whether he's saved or not saved. I think it's, it's really important to notice Daniel's not saved from going into the lion's den. He finds salvation rescue inside of the lion's den. With the lions right there, with the angel showing up. The angel doesn't show up outside of the lion's den. The angel doesn't show up and wipe away the law. The angel shows up when Daniel, perhaps starting to get a little bit afraid, when his feet touch the ground and the lions open their mouths. At that point, the angel shows up and the lions close their mouths. This is, this is how God operates in the scriptures. This is how he worked in the fiery furnace. They weren't saved from the furnace, but the Son of God came into the furnace. And it was Daniel's experience. He, he, he knew of the exodus, God's rescuing of his people. He had these past experiences in his own life where God was faithful to him. And he knew that ultimately for all of history, God would be faithful to him as one of his people. It was this faith that grounded his ability to be faithful no matter what happened. And for you and I to be faithful, for you and I to, to follow Christ in a, in a world that sometimes tries to trip us and trap us and, and distract us, it's, it's vital that you and I also are centered in the saving power of Christ. That we recognize and remember constantly what he's done, the victory he's accomplished, the rescue that he promises us, um, not only now in, in, in these temporal situations, but also even if we were to die, even if we were not to, to be rescued here and now, the ultimate rescue, the resurrected to live an eternal life. And there's a reason that Christians can't read the story without thinking about Christ, without thinking about what he's done without thinking about the promises that we have in him. Daniel was grounded in the saving power, and this is one of the reasons we, we take communion every week, because we want to ground ourselves in the saving power of Christ. We want to ground our stories and our lives and our weeks and our relationships and our jobs and our um, duties and our conversations and our desires and our temptations and our struggles. We want to ground all of it in the fact that Christ has died for us and risen again. 
and then the fact that in Him we are forgiven, and we are loved, and we are accepted, and we are cleansed, and we are changed, and we are given a future and a hope. All of our lives comes out of that fact, that rock-solid foundation. As we, we come in, in just a moment to participate in communion, we remember Daniel, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Egypt, and, and we remember that on the cross, Jesus, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, which then goes on, Psalm 22, to, to speak of God's saving from the mouths of the lions in language that most likely draws on Daniel 6 here. Well, even inside, I think, the canon and our scriptures, you have this link between the lion's den and Christ, between his work on the cross and the resurrection and, and our salvation. And Daniel was able to be faithful because he had these regular times of spiritual discipline built into his life and because he, his entire life was centered on the saving power of God, the saving power that we have seen embodied in the person and work of Christ. And as we seek to be faithful this week, the rest of today, tomorrow, there's no better way than, than for us to come and participate in communion, to come to the table and remember what Christ has done on our behalf and the call that has been placed on our life. Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. We thank you for your, your grace in our lives. We pray that, like Daniel, we might be given the strength and grace to be faithful, that we might now start to pour in time and effort and practice, Father, that, that in our day of testing and trial, we might be able to stand. We, we praise you for your salvation and for your grace and we we ask that that would give us the fuel and the motivation to be able to follow after you faithfully that we would not be content with compromise and we not be content with apathy that we would passionately follow after you that we would reorganize our entire lives around who you are and what you've done father that that we might like daniel be faithful resident aliens be a strange people in a strange land who know you and follow you and are loved by you. It's in your son's name that, that all of God's people said. Amen.